Man, this morning I have the task of continuing a journey that we started a few weeks ago through the Old Testament book of Esther. And man, what a journey it has been. As I've continued to say, this is um, a journey I've been excited to go on. I've never really spent time in the book of Esther. We've never preached through the book of Esther. So what a privilege to learn um, together as we take these steps through the book. But we've also uh, discovered, I think, over the last few weeks, one of the reasons I was a little bit anxious about this book, because it surfaces some seriously heavy and messy issues. And I just want to say to you as a church, thank you so much for the courage that it's taken to continue to journey into these really difficult and murky waters. And um, thank you so much for being the kind of church that doesn't, you know, steer away from the heavy and the hard things. Um, And uh, that has been the case through this journey um, in the book of Esther. And that's going to continue to be true this morning. Um, We are stepping into a culture with practices and priorities very different from ours. And that, again, is going to continue to stir up uh, tension and and messy themes. And yet we just want to ask the Lord, what do you want to reveal to us about you and about us as we journey through uh, this book together? So, um, man, a little extra anxious about this morning. I mean, we've discussed a lot of heavy things here at Mission Point, but uh, some of the themes that emerge from chapter 3 of the book of Esther represent um, topics of conversation that I think have been the most rattling here at uh, Mission Point. If I've ever faced um, criticism or if people have ever marched out of the doors of this church, it's been around some of the themes that are coming up this morning. And so everything in me is tempted to say like, well, can we just get from chapter two to chapter four, you know, Um, but not without going through chapter three. So spirit of the living God, give us your grace, give us your power as we take these steps. Uh, Again, if you have a copy of the Bible, meet me in Esther chapter uh, three. If you've not been with us through the course of this series, I would encourage you, hey, head to the website, missionpoint.net or YouTube or Facebook page. You'll be able to find it um, anywhere uh, to get caught up. But um, real quick, so far, um, we have met a number of characters. The book of Esther is set in the kingdom of Persia about 500 years before Jesus Christ. Uh, particularly, it's set in the capital city of Persia called Susa, modern day uh, Iran. And um, the king at the time is a man named Xerxes. Xerxes has this fallout fight with his wife. He gets mad at her, so he banishes her um, from the kingdom, and then he becomes lonely. And so he, man, issues this mandate to round up virgins from around the country to come to his palace to audition for the role of queen. It's in that process that unfortunately a Jewish slave woman by the name of Esther rises um, to the top of his candidate list and he takes her as his wife. She, this Jewish woman, becomes uh, the new queen of Persia. Um, Esther has been orphaned at an early age and has been raised by her cousin, an older man by the name of Mordecai. Um, When Esther becomes queen, Mordecai is very clear to her, do not reveal that you are a Jew under any circumstances. And she honors that throughout the course of um, her tenure as queen up to this point. Uh, Where we left off last time is Mordecai, Esther's adopted father, um, ends up 
covering and foiling an assassination plot to take out the king. And so he gets word to the king. Somebody's trying to kill you. And he makes sure that the king knows that he's the one who saved his life. The king investigates this plot, finds it to be true, and executes um, these two dudes who tried to kill him. And then we get to chapter 3. Verse number 1. Here's what it says. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamedatha, the Agagite, elevating him, Haman, and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. So, uh, Esther chapter 3 um, opens by introducing us to the final key character in this story. And if you thought for a moment that Xerxes was the villain in this story, behold Haman. Man, the music turns dark and it intensifies just signaling to the audience that there is some serious evil lurking. Um, and once again... The author is very particular about what he chooses to reveal about each character when he first introduces that character to us. For instance, when he introduced us to Mordecai, he wanted us to know that Mordecai is not just a Jew, but he is a Jew from the elite tribe of Benjamin, and he is a great-great-grandson of Israel's first king, King Saul. Now, when he introduces us to Haman, he wants us to know that Haman is an Agagite. Very interesting. Um, Now, uh, by the time of Esther, uh, the term Agagite was a euphemism used to refer to anyone who hated the Jews. Agagite was a euphemism to describe someone who was anti-Semitic. In fact, that's still true in certain parts of the world today. If Jews are speaking about somebody um, who is anti-Jewish, they'll refer to them as Agagites. It's a term that has stuck around. But more than that, Haman himself is actually most likely a direct descendant of an individual named Agag. Agag was the king of a group of people, a nation known as the Amalekites. The Amalekites have the very unfortunate and infamous distinction of being the first people group on the planet to target and attack the Jews when they were the most vulnerable wandering in the wilderness, the Amalekites were the first anti-Semitic people on the planet in history. One of the most famous incidences um, in this national tension between the Jews and the Amalekites came uh, years after they first attacked the Jews when Saul was king of Israel, Saul went to war against the Amalekites and he actually defeated them. And despite God telling Saul, you need to eliminate everything um, Amalekite, Saul decided, no, I'm going to keep some of this stuff and I'm going to take their king as my captive, as a bragging right, as a living trophy. And the king of the Amalekites was a man by the name of Agag. Eventually, they would end up executing King 
Agag. But in the minds of the, the Jews, that story became infamous. And it was used to almost speak about anyone who came against them as Agagites, almost as a way of saying, listen, if you come after us as the Jews, you are going to meet the same fate that Agag, the king of the Amalekites, met. Now you can start to see what the author is poetically setting up for us. Mordecai, a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin, A great, great, great grandson of the first king of Israel, Saul. And now here comes Haman, the Agagite, the Amalekite, the great, 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 great grandson of King Agag who lost this epic battle to Saul. And here they are, the tension could not be more. Thick in the room. Haman the Agagite. Double meaning. He hates the Jews and he's also actually a descendant of King Agag. But back to the story. When this chapter opens, Haman, this uh, anti-Semitic, this... uh, Agagite is receiving the biggest possible promotion in the world. He has done something so pleasing to King Xerxes that Xerxes elevates him, promotes him, and makes him the second most powerful man in the kingdom. Essentially the second most powerful man in the entire world. Such a high position that the king actually orders all of his fellow leaders to bow in his presence. If Haman shows up, y'all take a knee. In fact, that is true for everybody in the kingdom. And so everybody cooperates with this order from the king to bow in the presence of this newly promoted anti-Semitic individual named Haman. Everybody bows when he comes into the general vicinity. Everybody except Mordecai. Verse 2. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Mordecai knows the king has ordered this, but he just straight says, psych, hard pass on that. No, thank you very much. It directly defies the king's order and directly dishonors this king's um, Official, His defiance actually becomes very obvious to the leaders in that area and the other people who work around the gate. So they actually confront him. They press him on this. Verse number three. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, why do you disobey the king's command? Why Mordecai? Which I think is very curious of them. And it's a very good question. I think that's a great ask. Why? I mean, this same king issued an order for your daughter to be forcefully taken as one of his pleasure options. And you let her go. Now he orders you to bow in the presence of this Agagite. And this is where you choose to literally take a stand? I think it's a good question. Why? We're not sure why because he doesn't answer the question. But 
theories have been posited because that's what we do. Um, Theory number one is it's a matter of conviction. Like Mordecai as a man of faith refuses to bow because I will not bow to a man. I bow to God alone. It's a matter of faith, a matter of conviction. That's a soft thought. No offense, Christians have loved that idea. Um, Except there's nothing in the Jewish faith, assuming Mordecai subscribed to it, that will prevent him from bowing down to a man to honor him. Now, to bow down to another man to worship him, that's different. But to honor him, eh, that's not a problem. Plus, come on, Mordecai, you've bowed down to King Xerxes many, many times. Plus, other men of faith in the scriptures like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, when they refused to bow to an idol, refused to bow to a a king to worship them, they made very clear why they were taking that particular stand. Mordecai does not. Another thought is maybe it's history, right? Like um, Mordecai knew Haman was an Agagite, an anti-Semitic Amalekite. He's grown up hearing stories about the long-standing tension between these two people groups. And he's like, I cannot bow down to someone who hates my people. Maybe that. Another option, which I kind of prefer personally, is it's just plain old jealousy. Because chapter 2 ends uh, with Mordecai uncovering, right, and foiling a plot to assassinate the king. And again, keep in mind, he made sure that the king knew that Mordecai was the one who saved his life. And Mordecai wanted the king to know because he knew that the king was going to do what kings were famous for doing, to show um, absolute gratitude for loyalty towards um, the king. He knew that if the king knew he saved his life, he would richly reward him with some straight cash or at least a major promotion. Um, But nope, not a peep from the king regarding Mordecai and what he did. Instead, chapter 3 opens up with this anti-Semitic guy receiving the greatest promotion. And the way the author pens this story, it almost insinuates that there is the possibility that Haman is the one who actually carried out the investigation and the assassination slash execution of these two traitors. So Mordecai is like, you got my promotion and I got nothing. There is no chance I'm honoring you in light of that. Plus you hate my people. I don't know. He doesn't tell us why exactly he refuses to bow. But regardless of what his reasons are, the other officials plead with him. Please, come on man, this is not that complicated a gesture. Just go through with it. Even if it's not sincere. But Mordecai refuses to bow and he refuses to explain himself. In fact, the only thing he blurts out in the middle of these conversations is, I'm a Jew. The very thing he told Esther not to reveal. And he chooses to reveal it in the midst of his defiance of an Agagite. Very, very interesting move. Anyway, his little revelation of his nationality, his heritage, his, um, his background stirs in these fellow officials just a curiosity that they could not leave alone. And now they want to know, oh, 
I wonder what this famously anti-Semitic guy is going to do when he realizes that it's a Jew who's refusing to bow down to him. And so they report Mordecai to Haman and then they buy some popcorn just to see what happens next. Verse number four, day after day they spoke to him, that's Mordecai, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated for he had told them he was a Jew. So Haman hears about this, and I can imagine Haman drops whatever he's doing. He has to come and see this obstinance for himself, right? And I would think, man, if there was ever a moment to at least fake it till you make it, Mordecai, this is it. Haman is standing in front of you, staring you down, but Mordecai is like, stares at Haman refuses to budge. And then the screen goes black and we go to commercial break. Because man, that's a lot of tension. Okay, then after about the 400th State Farm commercial, we come back and check out what happens. Verse number 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Anger like lava bubbling in him, just longing to pour out and burn Mordecai to ash. Verse 6, yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the entire kingdom, 127 countries of Xerxes. I am going to do what my great-great-grandfather Agag failed to do. I am going to erase the Jews from the face of the planet. Now, there are a lot of dark turns in this story, but in the mind and the intent of the author, this is the turn for the darkest. Haman is angry and his anger agagites. It becomes so ferocious that it literally makes him sick to his stomach. It disgusts him to think about only killing one Jew. His rage, his hate will not be satisfied until every Jew has been eliminated from the face of the planet. So he begins to actively plan the destruction of millions and millions and millions of people around the world. And I'm just asking, can you imagine getting to the place where you desire the demise of an entire category of people? No, really, can you imagine that? Because I think one of the questions that we have to ask, one of the questions that this story, this, this chapter, this passage surfaces. 
is, are you an Agagite? Am I an Agagite? Feel free to, to be more curious and ask more questions about yourself. I'm not just asking, do you hate Jews? I'm not asking, are you anti-Semitic? If you are, then you certainly qualify as an Agagite. I'm asking you, are you anti-any category of people? Is there any group of people towards whom you feel distaste or disgust? And it doesn't take much. They don't have to do much. You don't have to see much of a report in the news for it to trigger in you the bubbling rage. Looking for ways to spill over. And man, if I spent a few days with you, I would hear it in your disparaging comments about those people. And if you spend enough time with me, you would hear it in my disparaging comments about that particular category of people. But we are good Christian folks, so we would never come out and say it, at least not without first saying, I don't mean to be, enter fill in the blank, but, I mean, I don't mean to sound like a, um, but, Right, the great eraser, because it doesn't count if I add the disclaimer, the preemptive disclaimer, I don't mean to sound like what I'm about to sound like. Your family knows you have a problem with that group of people. And if something terrible happens to them, eh, you wouldn't be too upset. You might even consider it an answer to prayer. Are you an agagite? I'm just asking, is there any category of people whose demise you cheer for? Whether it's a racial group, whether it's a political party, whether it's critical race theorists, whether it's pick the hashtag of what lives matter, sexual orientation, a certain gender, men. I'm not asking the reasons why, I'm just asking about the posture of the heart because that's the question. Can you imagine anyone getting to the place where you would want or cheer for the elimination of a group of people? Because no one wakes up wanting that. Now, that may be a hard question to answer, but thankfully Haman's going to help us delve a little bit deeper into these places. Haman... The Agagite. He doesn't call himself that, but his actions reveal it. Hates the Jews and is actively thinking of ways to eliminate them. Verse 7. In the twelfth year of King Xerxes, in the first month 
of Nisan. So Esther has been queen maybe about five years or so. The pur, that is the lot, was cast in the presence of Haman to select a day and month. And the lot fell on the 12th month, the month of Adar. So here's what this is describing. Haman um, has gone to the phase of his planning where he's gathered his, his spiritual advisors, a group of men um, that he considers very gifted in, in magic arts and, and the ability to connect with the gods. We might think of uh, like psychics and, and fortune tellers and people of that sort. And um, one of the chief ways that they discern the will of their gods is by throwing these big wooden dice. And if you're good at reading the dice, then it will reveal to you a message from the gods. So here in verse 7, Haman is asking the gods, on what day should I plan on the mass annihilation of the Jews? And apparently the gods answered him, 11 months from now, the month of Adar. Great, green light from the gods. Now let's just get the king on board. Um, man, it is so, so scary when we ever get to the place where we believe our hate has the backing of our God. So Haman goes to the king and he gives um, us just a master class in hate and how to spread its poison. He gives us a master class in ways that you know the seeds of the agagite may be growing, if not fully Grown. Verse number eight. Haman said to King Xerxes, There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom who keep themselves separate. Their customs are different from those of all other people, and they do not obey the king's laws. It's not in the king's best interest to tolerate them. That was good. If you can convince me that there is a group of people who are a threat, who are coming after me and they're coming after mine, It's going to immediately make me at a minimum suspicious, if not scared, but then defensive. And you should see what people start to do when they feel defensive or they feel threatened. This is brilliant. Haman does this brilliantly. And the way he does it is by using the language of an agagite. I mean, did you notice some of the words? We'll emphasize some of them. He starts by saying certain people. (laughs) certain, he says, Um, doesn't name them, doesn't name them. Why? Because he doesn't want to run the risk of Xerxes associating someone he knows who might 
belong to that particular category of people, like his wife, for instance, which he doesn't yet quite know. This is brilliant. If you can reduce people to a label or a category or a side, you can start to dehumanize them. If I can take the names and the faces out of the conversation and just use a category. Republicans are so much easier to dislike than Grandpa George, that sweet man. Oh, I didn't even know you were gay. Oops. I've just been using this term. I didn't actually think about a person that I, I didn't even think about that the people I work with. I didn't even. That's what he does. I'm asking you, are you an, you an agagite? Is there the tendency in you to start to talk about categories of people, particularly people you're not favorable towards, just with labels and generalities. And then he says they're dispersed. <laughs> this is so interesting. Like they're spread out among us, man. Uh, I mean, these, the Jews are slaves who've been dragged out of their country uh, to live abroad. But he makes it sound like this is a strategy on their part. Like they're spies who've infiltrated and they've blended in. And I'm just saying, watch out for that language, that agagite language in you and that agagite language around you that starts to portray people who are unlike you, like they're invaders and they're kind of everywhere, like their increase is your demise. Because if you start to think that, they're infiltrating. And I see them ever, it's going to make you, you're going to kind of want them gone. This is a brilliant strategy by Haman. And it says they're separate. They're separate, right? Like they think they're better than us, you know, because they keep to themselves and they refuse to assimilate and they have their own neighborhoods and their own little clubs and, and their own teams and all of that stuff. And they just stay at a distance, he says to the king. Who knows what they're even talking about? Again, watch out for that. That is seeds of the Agagite. I mean, everybody is more comfortable with people who are like them. When I start to make it out, like, no, it's a, they're, they're distant and they're, 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 you know, starts to make us feel like, you know, they're rejecting us. They're defiant or whatever the case might be. He's really smart with this. And then he says they're different, you know. They're not like us. They do things differently and they practice their own customs and, 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 and a different religion. And I don't understand all that they do. It's very different. It's their own thing, right? They're bent on doing their own thing. And before long, they're going to expect us all to maybe do things the way they do things. And he says they're disobedient. King, they're disobedient. He moves so seamlessly from they are different to they are dangerous. By the time he calls them disobedient, it just makes sense. He has given no example, no incident, hasn't named a single person. And all of this is because he has beef with Mordecai. And Mordecai has disobeyed one law, which is true. 
regarding Haman. No, all of them. Right? I had a bad experience with this guy. That I, I think all of them are like that. Right? They're different. And they're dispersed among us. And they're standing at a distance. And they're disregarding your commands. That's not a category of people you want to have sticking around. In fact, that's what he says. They're dangerous. And I'm telling you, king, if you don't take them out, they will take us out. They're coming for you. They're coming for us. So let me ask again. Are you an Agagite? Maybe in seed form. Maybe just in the fact that without being aware of it, you are starting to talk or buy into the kind of language that he uses when he speaks to the king. I mean, I've just got to say, as, as, as the Jesus people, we've got to be very careful with this. A couple of quick things. I, I would say, first of all, just in general, reject generalizations. The seeds are very subtle, and it starts with me being willing to just lump a whole group of people with that one suspicious thing. You know how white people are. I mean, they act like, but really, we ought to shut that down. Probably me more than you, most of you. But to me, I'm like, what? All white people? Like, including my wife? All white people. We ought to shut that down. And on top of that, I'm like, it, uh, well, I'm going to go ask some white people. So I'm going to ask Paul Henning, hey, I hear that uh, you white people, apparently, is this true? Amazing what happens when I'm actually going to go talk to somebody versus a category of people. I can't talk to a category. But we have to shut down the all this and all of that and this category and this group of people. Um, Because maybe a couple of times that was true, but all women though? I don't think so. I don't think you're right. All women can be crazy. Maybe it's just your three last exes because you keep going to crazyconnections.com as a dating site. Like, what do you expect? Man, I know a lot of gay people and I've never once heard someone say, we are here to make your children gay. Right? So if you hear somebody say, no, they all think this. So they, we've got to avoid and shut down the generalizations. Who are you talking about? It shocks me that Xerxes didn't ask that simple question. Who are you talking about? Jesus people ought to shut down generalizations. Even the flattering kind, can we be honest? You know how athletic black people are. I'm like, have you met 
except my one daughter. That kid cannot catch a cold. It's not good. Reject generalizing. Labels, categories. And I would say, let's learn to embrace differences. By the way, we have lost the art. (laughs) We've lost the art of embracing differences or disagreements. That we can disagree and we can be very different. And different doesn't mean dangerous. Because man, if I can make different, oh, it's different. You know what that's probably doing. If I can make different dangerous, then man, the smartest thing is to stay away and stay at a distance or better yet, destroy it. That's what you do with danger. So we've just got to be careful that we do not demonize differences. We embrace them. I'm telling you, it's for the church, we've got to stay away from, you know, the Mexicans. You know, they keep to themselves and they speak that they're Mexican. Um... They won't even assimilate. They do things so differently. And meaning what? What they defy us by not speaking our language. And, and, you know, they won't rest until they really? That's what they've said to you. No, but clearly... Or they don't believe like us. They don't vote like us. They're different. And you know, um, you know, come on, man. My wife and I are very different. And that's not dangerous. Unless I disagree with her. Otherwise, I'm kidding. That's not true. Man, the story, the Jews do things differently. That's true. But it was never a threat to King Xerxes. Never. Same thing with Pharaoh in the book of Exodus. And I would say, let's verify um, the threat. Xerxes should have verified like he did with the assassination plot. We've got to verify. Um, Otherwise, we are going to just start accepting and embracing. You know, we got to stop the Republicans before they get rid of all the gays. Like, really? That's what they've said to you, all of them. Well, those Democrats, before they mandate, all of us will be eating CRT sandwiches and, and stuff like that. You know. Or men, but, you know, because they're all self-absorbed liars. Maybe that was just your dad. Right? Talk to men. Have conversations. Verify. Which is what happens when it becomes less about a label and more about the name and the face of a person. Um, Anyway. um, Haman sows these poisonous agagite seeds of hate by using generalizations and indicting differences and... Making the Jews out to be a threat. And it wasn't even true. And it's almost as though while the king is processing this one threat. um, Haman appeals to another threat. The threat of the treasury. Because he went to war. Xerxes did with the Greeks. And he lost. And when he lost to the Greeks. Man his budget dropped. His funds were majorly depleted. And so Haman says. Oh and by the way king. 
I will make a generous donation to the Royal Fund of $3.5 billion for the privilege of eliminating the Jews. Wow. I don't know if Haman had that amount of money. He may have. Or if he was just banking on the fact that when we eliminate the Jews, we'll take all of their stuff and I'll replenish your resources. Verse 9, he says, if it pleases the king, let a decree be issued to destroy them. And I will give 10,000 talents of silver to the king's administrators for the royal treasury. Um, this is crazy. Again, no one wakes up willing to spend that much money to make sure that a whole people group are Eliminated, And in this tragic scene, Haman gets his darkest wish. Verse 10. So the king took uh, the signet ring from his finger and gave it to Haman, son of Hamedatha, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. Keep the money, the king said to Haman, and do with the people as you please. Man, that ring was the authority of the land. Whoever held the king's ring had all of the king's authority to do exactly what they wanted. No questions asked. This is a scary moment in the story. Verse 12. Then on the 13th day of the month, um, the royal secretaries were summoned. Ironically, that was the day before Passover. Passover when the Jews celebrated God sparing their lives from being eliminated in Egypt. They wrote out in the script of each province and in the language of each people all Haman's orders to the king's satraps. The governors um, of the various provinces and the nobles of the various peoples. They were written in the name of King Xerxes himself and sealed with his own ring. Dispatches were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill, and annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, on a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. By order of the king, you are to kill every Jew, man, woman, and child. And take their stuff. It doesn't matter who you are. You are ordered to participate in eliminating the Jews. 11 months from today is D-Day and all the Jews die. A copy of the text of the edict, verse number 14, um, was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality. So they would be ready for that day. This is crazy. The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command. And the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink. But the city of Susa was bewildered. Haman and Xerxes, they share a toast to celebrate this accomplishment. While the city is devastated. What on earth just 
happened. I cannot imagine being a non-Jew getting this mandate that I had to participate in this mass elimination. I cannot imagine getting this mandate as a Jew and thinking, what on earth have we done? 11 months from now, we get completely obliterated and we can't run because this edict has gone out to the entire world, essentially. And I'm just asking the church, how do you feel about that? How do you feel about this edict? How do you feel about what Haman has pulled off? How do you feel about this order? How do you feel about this mass order to completely annihilate an entire group of people? How do you feel about that? And if you were there, what would you do? And if this order came to your home, what would you say? How would you respond to something like this? And I'm just telling you, I hope we process this for weeks. I hope we continue to have these conversations. Honestly, I pray we'll have this conversation non-defensively and with, with humility. Because if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this should enrage you. This should break your heart just like it breaks your God's heart. No excuses, no disclaimers. If a mandate goes out to eliminate all of the people from Ukraine, the church should respond. This is wrong with heartache. It's not so much about all of the reasons and understanding everything that goes into it. We should respond like the people of God, this should outrage us. This should break our hearts. Oh, and if a man goes into a grocery store to target black people for their elimination, that should outrage us. It doesn't matter what racial background you're from. That is wrong. That should outrage us. Every single time, I fear that for us, I don't know what's happened. I don't know where the church has, has gone astray. I'm not quite sure, but this is a conversation I've noticed that we are just less and less willing to have and to just talk about what does it look like to be the people of God when it comes to racism in the Bible, when it comes to racism in our world and in our community, regardless of which way it's going. And what we've done instead, man, is we've, we've started to almost act like, mm, yeah, but if we acknowledge what happened in Buffalo, then we have to almost acknowledge that this may still be an issue. And if we do that, then the left wins. I'm like, when did we politicize racism? It's become a political issue all of a sudden. And then if somebody says, well, this white man shot these black people, so all white people, whoa, 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 hang on a second. Man, we are the church and we ought to respond the way God would respond, the way Jesus would respond. And then I'll hear stuff like this. I'm sorry, I know we have something to to wrap up the service, but I'll have people say this, which is what I find bewildering myself. Right? Like, yeah, at Mission Point, they talk about that stuff because their pastor is black. I'm like, wait, what? When we learned that there were kids in this community who were struggling with resources last year, we addressed it because we don't think that's okay. 
When we heard something was happening in Ukraine and we could do something small about it, we addressed it. When we were in this book a couple of chapters ago and we realized they were talking about sex trafficking and injustice against women, we addressed it. And when racism shows up, we addressed that too. Please don't cheapen what we talk about like it's somehow a niche in the church because... No, we will address it. And if something else comes up that breaks the heart of God, we'll address that too, regardless of what that thing is. This is why I'm so grateful for those of you who continue to be courageous to step into these messy conversations and just ask the Lord, what is it that you want to do in us? How is it that you want to heal us? And how is it that you want to use us? But in either case, I would invite you to please don't shy away from this. Please don't get defensive in these conversations. Let's have them honestly and ask the Spirit what He wants to do in us. And for the love of God, let's not do that thing where we start with the whatabouts. Oh, your grandmother just died. Okay, I get that. But what about all of the people who never met their grandmothers? What? That's not the response. Yeah, I appreciate that this guy killed these black people, but what about all of the other black people who are killing us? What? That's not the response. And I promise you as a church, whichever way injustice turns, we will address it. If we're in this community and we start to hear people raging against you know how the cops are. Which cops? I just worshipped in front of Joel Poppenfuss over here. Which cops are you talking about? So let's not shy away. Let's ask the question, Jesus, who are you calling us to be? And how do you want us to address injustice however we find it? What Haman did was wrong. And may you heal any seeds of the Agagite in me. And may you use us to be your hands and feet in this world. Because you hate injustice. You hate racism. However it shows up. Let's not look at a story like this and say, man, that is really, really bad. But then when it happens in our world, we have a different response. The spirit of the living God do a work in us and heal us and, and use us to make a difference in the world around us. Forgive me for the ways that I have an Agagite spirit. Heal me and make me more like the person of Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.